welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Going home is a frequent and powerful theme in great literature. Homer's Odyssey, the parable of the prodigal son, and an endless list of others. At Valparaiso University, you can even take an English class that focuses just on going home stories. Guess where those students are going after finals? Teaching team member Bob Cargo brings us this message entitled, Overtaken by Gladness and Joy, which covers Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. Thank you for joining us today. You know, that whole theme of longing for home, uh, you know, we just gave you a little bit of a tidbit of the songs and the movies that have that kind of theme. I think other than maybe going home, one of the other great themes of movies is to be, uh, to be saved and delivered out of danger, uh, saved out of captivity. When you put two, two together, you've got a killer kind of plot, don't you? Delivered from danger and then taken back home. And I think those things resonate with us in movies and in stories because those things really reflect the story of the universe, right? really does. This whole idea of going home, uh, though, we'll have to admit this, that without the proper perspective, isn't it true that the trip home always seems to take like forever? Uh, I don't know if you can relate to this. Think back to your own childhood or maybe to uh, your own children's experience now, if they're still little or if they've grown up. But I know in my experience, there were times of traveling to see extended family for the holidays. It would seem like the trip there would take forever. And what is it the kids in the backseat are saying? What are they groaning all the way? Stuff like this. How much longer? How long will it take? When will we get there? And now you as adults, you've got a sense of perspective, so it's not so bad, right? You realize, okay, we've got a trip of several hours, but once we get there, it's going to be great. Unless your family is really dysfunctional, okay? And then you're thinking the trip is a little bad. When we get there, it gets real bad. That's the way it works. And, and, you know, it works the same way on a trip to the beach and vacation for kids too, right? Oh, how much longer? When will we be there? And don't you want to turn around to the back seat and say, just trust me. It's going to be great. Stop thinking about now. Stop thinking about the car seat or stop thinking about wiggling around. Think about where we're going. It's going to be great. Believe me. And that's the kind of thing we want to communicate, right? Uh, Well, spiritually speaking, we have to admit, we're really not very different from kids, are we? We know in our head, if we know the story of Christianity, that the Lord is coming to take us home. In fact, that's the real theme of what Christmas is all about. Christmas is the story of a Savior who comes and he delivers us from captivity and he gives us wonderful gifts and he is taking us safely home. That's the story of Christmas. But what do we do? We get impatient. We lose perspective. We think only about right now, and we get it all mixed up. Our problem as Americans out of the 20th and 21st century is we live in a culture that is always screaming me, and it's always screaming now. And the more we focus on me and the more we focus on now, the more we get all mixed up in what our perspective ought to be. Let me put it this way. Christianity involves a lot of things in the story, but four of them are these. It involves the first coming of Jesus as our Savior, what Christmas is all about. Not just his birth, but his life and his death, the whole, the whole thing. It involves the story of our happiness. It involves the story of the church, not just this local church, but big C church, all of God's people in all time in all nations who are following him. 
So there's Jesus first coming, our happiness, the church, and then the end of time when Jesus comes back. And all of it as Americans, those are four different things that are totally unrelated to each other. But what our desperate need is to get those things in alignment in the way we think and in the way we believe. So that there's the first coming of Jesus to deliver us. And then he forms the church, that is, those who were his followers. And then someday he'll come back again and make everything right. And my happiness is built on all of that. That is what we desperately need to get aligned in our heads and in our hearts and in our emotions too. Today's message is going to be a little bit complex because of this. It comes out of the Old Testament. So there's an Old Testament fulfillment of this prophecy. Then it's partially fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. And then it's ultimately fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus. And we live in between these two. So it's a little complex. It's sort of the big story of things, but it's awfully important to see the big story, right? Your kids on that trip get lost. Why? They get frustrated. Why? Because they don't see the whole story. They don't see the whole trip. Same thing happens to you and me both. We sometimes just fall through the floor in our attitudes because we don't have the big picture. The title of today's message is Overtaken by Gladness and Joy. Overtaken by gladness and joy. And uh, it's interesting, as I was beginning to prepare this message a couple of weeks ago, I went through a week in which I was experiencing anything in the world but gladness and joy. And I I told my wife, Margaret Ann, I said, you know, I'm really struggling with this message about joy because I'm not joyful. Right now, I'm like feeling everything in the world but joy. And Margaret Ann reminded me that God often takes me through experiences when I'm planning to preach So that I'll know that I need this message as much as anybody does. Uh, That's why she has often asked me to preach on the topic of how to handle fabulous wealth. (laughs) Lord, test me. I'm ready. I don't know if I would be ready. But when it came to this thing on preaching on joy and gladness, uh, that's what happened. I was anything but joyful and glad. And I really realized that I have the same problem we all do, and that is we lose a sense of perspective. And I realized that this is very, very true. I'm sad to the degree that I focus on now and me. And I'm joyful to the degree that I focus on then and we. Does that make sense? I'm sad to the degree that I focus on now and me. But in this big picture of God taking us home, I'm joyful to the extent that I focus on then and we. That's what we want to talk about today. And if that doesn't make sense, I hope that by the time we end this message, it will. Our message today will have three parts. We're going to talk about the text itself in Isaiah 35. Then we're going to talk about the Christ-centered fulfillment of this text. Jesus actually applies it to himself. And thirdly, we're going to see how we should respond to the gospel in this text. Because this text has a wonderful promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Follow with me as we look at this. And then let me say also as we come to this point, in all three parts of this story... The part in the Old Testament, the part of Jesus' first coming, and the part of our response about how Jesus fulfills it, there are three themes. And these themes are three things you and I desperately want for ourselves, three things that we want for the people we love, and three things we want for our world. And they are renewal and healing and holiness. Especially after this tragedy in Connecticut, don't we yearn for a world that has seen the reality of renewal and healing and holiness. Isn't there somebody in your life that you love that you would love to see this come true in their lives, renewal and healing and holiness? 
And if you're in touch with the needs of your own heart, like I'm in touch, I hope, a little bit with the needs of my own, I've got to admit, I need renewal and healing and holiness. And that's why I'm excited about the story of Christmas. Let's look at first at the story in the Old Testament. Isaiah 35 has already been read for us. We've already looked at it. Let me give you the context before we start diving into the first few verses. The background of this is that it's a prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. He lived in the 8th century B.C. And he talked first about the Assyrians that would come and capture the northern ten tribes of Israel and take them away into captivity. 200 years later, the Babylonians would come and conquer the southern kingdom around Jerusalem. And amazingly, he prophesied about that with great accuracy. He talks about the judgment that God would then bring upon the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But here in chapter 35 of Isaiah, instead of word of judgment against Israel or the people outside of Israel, he gives them good news. He gives them gospel. And in this chapter, he describes what would happen in the 6th century B.C., and that is the exiles of Babylon and a few of the descendants of the Assyrian exile are coming back to Jerusalem. And he shows here, as they come back to Jerusalem, it is overwhelmingly a joyful kind of thing. And God is showing them what he's doing by working around them and giving them these three signposts that they're on the way home. These three gifts as their Savior, renewal and healing and holiness. Let's see where we see that in the passage. Look at verses 1 and 2. Here we see renewal. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. You've heard of the Rose of Sharon, a place in Israel where beautiful flowers blossom. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. Also, we see it in verses 6 and 7. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will gush forth in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground, bubbling springs, and the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Do you see the picture here? It's almost like you could envision it almost like a cartoon that as the Israelites are walking through the desert back to Israel, the whole surrounding around them, the desert is becoming like a beautiful place. Things are growing left and right. Now, that literally didn't happen at that time. It was poetic language and figurative language. But it also points ahead, I think, to the return of Jesus. When all the earth will be made like the Garden of Eden, and it will all come literally true. The second part of this this passage is not only about renewal, it's about healing. Verses 5 and 6, and this is what Jesus quotes later. It says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, And then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. The idea is that the Israelites are coming back to their home, that God is healing them on the way. And people that can't see can see. People that are deaf all of a sudden can hear. And those that are having to be carried soon are jumping and leaping because the process of coming home is a healing process. That's the idea. There's not only renewal and healing, there's also holiness. Look at verses 8 and 9. Isaiah says, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. Let me stop and comment. It's a holy way because of where it goes, Jerusalem. And it's a holy way because of those who are on it, people that are made holy. It says the unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. 
Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there. In other words, it's a safe place. And let me just mention that the path of holiness is always the safest path of our lives. Because only the redeemed will walk there. Now, this had to especially be so encouraging for these people that had been taken into captivity for this reason. The reason they were in captivity is because of their sin and because of the sin of their parents and of their grandparents. And they're thinking to themselves, I'm anything but holy. And so the Lord gives them a promise here that's a wonderful promise. It's not only the promise of renewal. It's not only the promise of healing. It's the promise of people, promise to people. That although they had been so sinful and rebellious against God, that God had to give them this kind of rebuke, this kind of correction, that he would redeem them and ransom them and make holy people out of rebellious people. What a great encouraging word to them and to us. Verse 10 gives the end of the story like the final scene of a blockbuster movie. It says, and the ransom of the Lord will return They'll enter Zion with singing, like singing at the top of their lungs and singing from the bottom of their hearts. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will do what? It will flee away. Wow, what great promises. Now, there are only a couple of verses in this chapter that give us some commands. And those commands are back in verses 3 and 4. Look at what it says. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He'll come with vengeance and with divine retribution against your enemies and his enemies, and he will come to save you. Now, honestly, we as Caucasian Americans probably don't understand what happens in the psyche of a group of people when they have been uh, subjected to captivity or enslavement, or deportation. But that's what's happening with these Jews here. There is something that has happened for those that are taken away, and for their children and their grandchildren, that they have their life and energy sucked out of them. They have courage and strength sucked out of them. And what God says to these people is, yes, you've been in captivity, but I'm going to save you and set you free. And when you march from Babylon back to Jerusalem strengthen the feeble hands, steady the weak knees. Don't be afraid. Keep marching on because I'm going to give you renewal and healing and holiness, and I'm going to take you home. Wow, what a wonderful, beautiful picture of what the gospel is all about. That's what it says in the Old Testament. Now, perhaps we wouldn't have known that Isaiah 35 was about Jesus, except that Jesus quotes it and he applies it to himself. And he reminds us that the story of Christmas really is the story of a Savior who delivers us from captivity, and he gives us wonderful gifts, and he takes us home. Matthew 11 is where we see that fulfilled. Look at Matthew 11, 2 through 6, and here's the second part of the story. It says, when John, that is John the Baptist, heard in prison what Christ was doing, and let me mention the fact that John was in prison is very important in the story. And what he hears about Jesus is not just all the miracles that Jesus is performing. He hears that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. And he hears that Jesus is saying, the kingdom is here because I'm here. And John hears that, and yet it's confusing to him. And so, 
When Jesus, or rather when John hears what Jesus is doing, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, that is the Messiah, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. And here Jesus quotes from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away or stumble on account of me. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, all these miracles I'm performing, when I open the eyes of people that are blind and open the ears of people that are deaf, and I, and I touch people that are lame and they get up and walk, what is that all about? Jesus says those physical healings are about the spiritual healing that I'm bringing to my people. And it's a promise of the total healing of all the universe that's going to come someday. Yes, I'm the dude you're looking for. I am the Messiah. Tell him that this is what I'm doing. I'm giving to my people renewal and healing and holiness. Now, there are a few things about this Matthew 11 chapter that we've got to observe. First of all is this. Jesus is a surprising Savior. Don't stumble over him. Jesus says in the end of what I just read you, blesses the person who doesn't stumble over me or fall away because of me. And why do he say that? Well, here's what's going on. And this is why John was confused and why he sent his disciples to ask Jesus the question. John thought that when the Messiah showed up, and most of the Israelites at that time thought, when the Messiah shows up, he is going to kick the Romans in their rear and get them out of here. They're going to leave Israel. They're going to leave Palestine. God is going to restore Israel to all of the glory that we had under David and Solomon. That's what's going to happen when the, when the Messiah comes. And they didn't understand, and we often in our world don't understand, that there's part one of the coming of Jesus and part two. And all of that setting everything right, all of that bringing of the final judgment against evil, all of that getting rid of things like, a sick 20-year-old who kills children. That will get taken care of when Jesus comes the second time. But that wasn't what he was doing entirely when he came the first time. And this was very personal to John. I think if we get inside John's head there in prison, what he was thinking was this. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, then why am I sitting in prison waiting to be beheaded? If you're the Messiah, why don't you come and get me out of here? What's up? What's up? And what John didn't understand and what the Jews of that day didn't understand was this. Jesus came as a surprising Savior because in his first coming, he did not come to bring God's judgment. He came to bear God's judgment. That was what nobody expected. A Savior that is that kind of Savior. He doesn't just save with this power, he saves with his own blood. Jesus didn't come in his first coming holding a sword of judgment in his hand, but he came giving his hand to be nailed to a cross. He didn't come rendering the righteous judgment of God. He came receiving and being the recipient of the righteous judgment of God on behalf of his people. He came teaching a message of grace, and he came carrying out the act of grace to let himself be crucified for his people, to let all of that violence and evil be focused on him. 
And so he was a surprising savior. He didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear our judgment. And you know what? People still stumble over that today. Sometimes people stumble because they don't realize it's going to be later when everything is made right. When he gets rid of all this evil in the world and all the evil in our hearts and lives too at his second coming. But they especially stumble over a savior who would die. Really? Really? You mean my way of being reconciled to God, my way of being made right with God, the healing of all the brokenness in my heart is going to come about because a Jewish man, a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago died on a Roman cross? Are you kidding me? That seems so weird. People stumbled over it 2,000 years ago and people stumble over it today. But this is the good news of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul also said that the cross is the stumbling block to Jews and is foolishness to Gentiles, but it's the power of God for those who are being saved. It's the power of God for those who believe. So the first thing we see here, we see a surprising Savior. Don't stumble over him. Uh, Secondly, we see here not only this, we see that he came to bring this renewal and healing and holiness in us. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus healed these people physically, it was pointing to the spiritual. And sometimes God does answer our prayers and bring healing physically. At the end of the first service today, a brother came up and shared with me about some hard things that he's going through physically. And I prayed for God to heal him. And sometimes God does that. But the physical healings will, for the most part, wait until we're in heaven. The physical restoration of this world, including our bodies, will wait until Jesus returns. But all of that is pointing to something that is deeper and more central, and that is our spiritual healing. The story of the gospel is the story that eyes that are blind to the good news of grace have their eyes opened. And they see that Jesus is the Messiah. He died for my sins. That's my way to God. Ears that have been deaf to the gospel. The Holy Spirit opens those ears. And they hear the good news and they believe it. People that have been lame when it comes to obeying God's commandments and walking in the way of holiness. why They're healed from their lameness. And they start running in the paths of holiness and of obedience to God. That's a miracle. And that's what God is doing in our lives spiritually. A couple of times recently, I've had the chance to be back at in-town community church that I pastored for 13 years, and it reminded me of the stories of healing and renewal and holiness in people's lives, people like a guy named Ted. At the end of one of our inquirers classes, Ted raised his hand and said, what do you do with people that have questions? And sensing that he was a guy with a lot of questions, I said, I do lunch. That's what I do. So he and I, that next week, went to a little sports bar and grill around the corner from our church, and we had lunch there, and we came back then to my office And the gospel had taken heart, and we knelt at the couch in my office, and Ted committed his life to Christ and prayed to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. And when we stood up, he looked at me and he said, I feel called to the ministry. I said, whoa, one step at a time. (laughs) But he began to grow in his faith, and one of our leaders began to disciple him, and one of our other pastors began to help him think about his calling to ministry. And He was on my staff at the church I pastored in Orlando for a while. And for about 15 years, he's been in ministry. That's a story of renewal and healing and holiness. And I thought of Craig and Caroline, and the list could go on and on of stories of renewal and healing and holiness. Here in our church, I love that we have Celebrate Recovery. 
Whenever I talk with people that are involved in Celebrate Recovery, it, it reminds me that the gospel is about renewal and healing and holiness. And often in their lives, it's three steps forward and two steps back and three steps forward and two steps back. But God is bringing renewal and healing and holiness. Here in our church, we are really big on what we call journey groups and discipleship groups. And you know why? Because this whole process is one in which we need to be traveling with other people. It's not now and me, it's then and we. And so I'm traveling with other people in a discipleship group or a a journey group is a few men or a few women battling together to see the gospel give them renewal and healing and holiness. And that's what it's all about. Do you see your need, your ongoing need for renewal and healing and holiness? That's the work of Jesus. That's what he promised right here. And it's not just renewal and healing and holiness in us. It's renewal and healing and holiness through us. Part of this good news is we get to be agents of renewal and healing and holiness. Every time I hear one of the stories of our lead pastor, Randy Pope, as he shares about meeting men for lunch and sharing the gospel, I think to myself, there is another story of renewal and healing and holiness. At our officer dinner the other night, uh, there was a video shared of a family here in the church that the wife had become involved in a ministry called Victoria's Friends. It's a ministry to women that are trying to get out of the adult entertainment industry. And they got to know a lady who wanted to get out of that. And she needed to go to a place for about six months that she could get healthy again, healthy to take care of her kids. And they needed somebody to take these two children so that she could go away and get healthy for about six months. This family tells the story that they began praying that God would supply that family. And the Lord kept whispering back to them, you could be that family. And so they said yes. And they took those two kids in. That is a story of renewal and healing and holiness. This video we saw earlier in the service today about what Kingdom Investments is doing to help teenagers serve in our community. That's a story of renewal and healing and holiness. All of the things we do through our community outreach ministry. Why do we do those things? It's because we love people and we care about their needs. We also do it because every time we touch the life of someone in need and help them in some tangible way, it's a sign of the kingdom. It's a sign that the kingdom has come and Jesus is coming back again. And the fact that there's a little bit of renewal and healing and holiness in your life is a sign that someday Jesus is going to bring all of that to us in an ultimate way. Uh, That's what it's about. And it's not just in the churchy stuff. It's also in your work. Your work can be a way of extending renewal and healing and holiness. Are you a teacher? You're teaching people made in the image of God, and you're teaching them uh, about the world God made when you help them to think truthfully about that creation. That's a little bit of healing and holiness and and, uh, renewal. If you're a medical professional... I hope you're doing what you do with a heart for Jesus that as you, through medical practice, get people physically well, it's a sign a little bit that the kingdom is coming. I've heard recently about a member of our church who works for Coke, and he works in an area of Coke in which he promotes the Coke employees to have imagination and creativity. And he's excited about what he does in his job Monday through Friday. It's a part of the kingdom in his life. And he believes that and he sees that because he's helping people made in the image of God reflect the creativity of God in their own creativity. And so for him, it's not just about taking sugar water all over the world as much as I love their sugar water. It's really good stuff. Not the diet version. I like the Coke Classic. 
But for him, it's about getting people in touch with who they are made in the image of God. I could go on and on with examples, but it's all about Jesus. The truth of the matter is this. God is giving these signposts. And so we, we believe and we obey and we rejoice. And we believe and we serve and we rejoice. We believe, we obey, we rejoice. We believe, we serve, we rejoice. Charles Hans Spurgeon was a minister in London in the 19th century. He tells a story that at that time, as you can imagine, there were, there were roads that went out from London, out throughout Great Britain. And at a time in which you didn't have super highways and you didn't have big signs and you certainly didn't have GPS, once someone left London and wanted to find their way back, it was important at least to have some little signs placed on these dirt roads that would say, London is this way. And then when people came close to home again after such a grueling trip, they would always be excited to see that they're on their way home. This renewal, this healing, this holiness, these are like the signposts that say you're on the way home. And by the way, let me mention this. I don't know how it ever happened in Christendom that people began to divide out being gospel-centered and be fo- being focused on mission and having a pursuit of holiness. Now, it is true that we can pursue holiness and try to be missional without the gospel. That's always a danger we have to watch out about. Our hearts love self-congratulatory moralism. But let me be very clear about this. If you get the gospel, if you get the real gospel, it will make you missional. And if you get the real gospel, it will make you passionate for holiness. And let me just say, if you don't care about the mission of God and you're not passionate about holiness, you're not in touch with what the true gospel really it is, really is, because that's what it does. The gospel brings renewal and healing and holiness. A surprising Savior. This is happening in us. This is happening through us. And then finally, look at the amazing end of the story. The amazing end of the story. Isaiah 65 is how it's described. It says, Behold, the Lord says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I'll create Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem that comes to earth. And it will be a delight, and his people will be a joy. And I'll rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. That's the promise of what's going to happen right here. (laughs) That's the wonderful good news someday. It's not just that we go to heaven. Hear me well. It's that God brings heaven to us. There's a new heavens and a new earth that he gives to us. And all this stuff that he has started through his death and his life and his resurrection, he starts working it out in us and he starts working it out through us. And someday, all of creation will be renewed. Someday, all of creation will be made whole. Someday, all of creation will be made holy and will be healed. And it all started when Jesus came and lived and died That's the story of Christmas. That's the big story. Now, very quickly and finally, how then do we respond to the gospel in this text? How do we respond? I would say we respond this way. We believe and rejoice. We believe and rejoice. Believing and rejoicing will lead us to obedience. Believing and rejoicing will lead us also to perseverance. If we look ahead and believe. What do you want to say to your kids when they're, you're on that trip? And you've been driving for several hours to try to get to grandma's house. 
And they're back there whining and they're back there complaining. And don't you want to turn around and say, believe and rejoice. It's going to be great. Think ahead. Imagine what it's going to be. Think about your cousins. Think about your aunts and uncles. Think about the great food. Don't just think about the car seat. Don't think about how long you've been sitting here. Look ahead and rejoice. And I feel sure our Heavenly Father sometimes wants to say to us Americans that are so focused on right now, would you just look ahead and believe and rejoice? It really is true to the extent that I think about then and we, I'm happy. To the extent that I think about now and me, I'm sad. A great example of someone who looked ahead was Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter was a minister in the beginning of the 1700s. And Richard Baxter was a man who learned to set his heart on home and his heart upon heaven. He had been an army chaplain, and uh, during his time of being an army chaplain, also of an itinerant ministry of preaching here and there, his frail body began to break down. And at one point, he became so ill that he spent five months in the home of a friend, and they surely expected that he would die before he ever left that home. For five months, he was there, and all he had with him out of his library was a Bible. That's it. No other books. And anticipating that he would die, Richard Baxter began to read and to think about and meditate on and write about heaven and about the beauty of God in heaven. And it marked his life. He began to to take notes on what he saw, and God actually brought healing to him, and he recovered. And those notes became a series of sermons, and those sermons became the basis of a book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And it was such an impactful thing for Richard Baxter that from then on to the end of his life, he spent an hour of every day thinking and meditating upon heaven and the beauty of God. Now, I don't mean an hour a day studying the Bible and praying. I think I'm talking about an hour a day thinking about heaven and thinking about the beauty of God. And Richard Baxter says, I would rather think about heaven and about who God is than anything else. It fortifies me against sin and temptation. It makes me powerful for the duties that God has given to me. It elevates my mind and my spirit. And it so changed Richard Baxter that the town in which he ministered was changed. One of his biographers said that this change in Richard Baxter saved him from being prideful because God had done a lot in and through him. It saved him from being stuffy because he was quite a scholar. And it also saved him from bitterness despite all of his persecutions and hardships. In fact, in that little town where he ministered, the people, instead of continuing to ridicule him in effigy as they had at their wild parties, their attitude about Baxter changed, and they began to respect him and to respond to the gospel. Why? Because he looked ahead, and he believed, and he was changed. See, it makes all the difference in the world of what our perspective is. In verses 3 and 4 of this chapter, it talks about strengthen the weak knees and the feeble hands. And it's the picture, keep persevering. Yes, you've been corrected by God, but keep persevering. And that same theme is repeated in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12, the writer is writing to people like you and me, people that have blown it, people who have sinned, and people that are discouraged about that. And the writer of Hebrews says, when the Lord corrects you and disciplines you, don't take it lightly, don't blow it off, but also don't lose heart and give up. Instead, learn, be strengthened, continue on to follow the Lord. And as you do, 
Interesting how Hebrews 12 begins. In the middle and the end of the chapter, he's saying, keep on keeping on. And at the beginning of the chapter, this is what he says. He says, laying aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, let's run with endurance the race set before us, setting our eyes on Jesus. And he paints the picture that Jesus is glorified. Jesus is sitting in heaven, reigning for us, his work having been done. He says, set your mind on Jesus. And then he says, consider also him who endured such agony from sinners against himself so that you might take heart and not give up. In a fascinating way, what the writer of Hebrews says is this. If you've been trained and disciplined by God for some reason in your life, and you're feeling like you want to give up, don't give up. Do this. Look up and imagine your Savior reigning for you. Look ahead and imagine your Savior returning for you. And look back and remember your Savior dying for you. Because the more you keep your eyes focused on Jesus, the more you'll find that your, your soul, your heart, your life, you're being renewed, you're being healed, you're being led in the ways of holiness in ways you never could have imagined. The message today is simply this. Jesus is not the Savior we expected. He's better than that. He came not to bring God's judgment at me. He came to bear God's judgment for me. So therefore, I don't want to stumble over him. I want to embrace him as Lord of all. And that, my friends, is the story of Christmas. Now, let's pray. Let's pray. Let me lead you to pray about some things silently. With your head bowed, your eyes closed, if that's what you would like to do, let me ask you to, first of all, ask God to remind you of your need for renewal and healing and holiness. Only someone in denial doesn't know that they need to be renewed and healed in their heart and made holy. For a moment, get in touch with how you need it today. How are you broken? How are you captivated by sin? How are you not walking away in the way of holiness? Secondly, let me ask you, in a sense, to look up and look ahead. Imagine home. Imagine where you're going. Imagine Jesus reigning for you and someday returning for you. Wow. And then lastly, let me ask you to look back and remember Jesus dying for you. Think about the cross. And if you would, you'll see on the screen a prayer taken from Isaiah 53 and paraphrased from Isaiah 53. Would you read this prayer aloud with me as we trust in the cross of Jesus? It says, Lord Jesus... You were despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, you were despised and we esteemed you not. Surely you took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered you stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But you were pierced transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon you. And by your wounds, we are healed. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for delivering us from captivity. Thank you for healing us and renewing us and giving us holiness. And thank you that someday you're going to come back and take us home. Amen.
Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the Media Resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.